Hello, my name is Jack Buckley. I'm from UCLA Medical Center, and today I'd like to interview Dr. Berger and Browndike on behalf of the Education Committee of SNAC for the next edition of the Experts Audio Corner. Dr. Jeffrey Browndike is a researcher and clinician at Duke University Medical Center who is dual trained in cognitive neuroscience and clinical neuropsychology. He serves on the faculties of the Duke Institute for Brain Science, Duke Brain Imaging, and the Analysis Center and the Division of Geriatric Behavioral Health within the Duke Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. His research has focused on the translational and cognitive neuroscience of dementia, delirium, and late-life postoperative neurologic complications. This research work broadly involves the intersection of functional and structural neuroimaging techniques, neurogenics, and cognitive evaluation in geriatric clinical patient populations. His research efforts have been continuously funded since 2003 and have resulted in over 50 peer-reviewed publications. In addition to his research-based publications, Dr. Browndike has been involved in diagnostic consensus guidelines for vascular cognitive impairment and postoperative cognitive dysfunction, as well as guidelines for the use of cognitive and neuroimaging endpoints in cardiosurgical clinical trials. Dr. Berger is a researcher and clinician for the anesthesiology department of Duke Medical Center. He is an assistant professor in the Division of Neuroanesthesia. His research has focused on the understanding the cause of postoperative cognitive dysfunction and delirium and whether these disorders are caused by perioperative changes in Alzheimer's disease pathways. His research has been funded by the National Institute of Aging, and he recently received a Basin Award, which is a special K grant. There has been a great deal of interest in postoperative delirium lately, and today we will be discussing this with Drs. Berger and Browndike, who have done research on this topic, which may provide potential answers to the pathophysiology of the postoperative delirium. This is a follow-up to an interview I did with Dr. Abedin in February of this year on potential treatment options for postoperative delirium. I would like to discuss today with Drs. Berger and Browndike an article they published last year titled Resting State Functional Connectivity and Cognition After Major, Major Cardiac Surgery in Older Adults Without Perioperative Cognitive Impairment. So, Drs. Berger and uh, Browndike, can you, one of you, please describe for us why there's been so much interest lately in postoperative cognitive decline after surgery and why this is significant to our patients? So, there's been a long history of people studying uh, postoperative cognitive dysfunction. Uh, people have realized that this was a problem for probably more than 60 years now. But I think that because we're doing more and more surgery in older adults and because both our surgical and anesthetic techniques have become so much safer that we've been doing a lot more surgery in older adults. You know, the, the frequency or incidence of this problem has increased. And so with it, has, that's prompted a lot more discussion about this topic and a lot more interest in trying to understand what causes this and how we can stop it or how we can prevent it and how we can help uh, older adults enjoy the benefits of successful surgery without uh, the detrimental cognitive effects that some of them experience. So where did the idea uh, for performing this study come from? Uh, but before we get to that, maybe I can add a few things about POCD in general. So I would just add that POCD um, has also been recognized um, in both cardiac and non-cardiac surgeries as a risk factor for rehospitalization and mortality. Uh, so on a more practical level, in terms of hospital expense uh, for rehospitalization after a major surgery, having awareness of the person's uh, pre-surgical cognitive state as well as possible 
cognitive impairment after surgery may have some practical impetus for hospital administrators and the like, and it might be why POCD is getting a little bit more attention as well. And then there's some limited evidence to suggest that maybe POCD is an additional risk factor for late-life dementia, although that's a fairly controversial uh, idea. But there are trials and longitudinal studies that may be pointing towards the possibility of uh, postoperative cognitive dysfunction setting an individual up for a greater risk for subsequent late-life cognitive decline. As far as POCD diagnosis, that in and of itself is somewhat controversial in terms of how you actually define the cognitive change after surgery necessary to be called POCD, although we are starting to formulate a consensus around that with the idea of operationalizing the amount of change that might be necessary uh, and then how that change in cognition is determined either uh, in comparison with controls or normative data that may be available in some of the tests. So in terms of the study itself, um, the study reflects a research partnership between myself and uh, Dr. Joseph Matthew, who's the Jerry Reeves Professor of Anesthesiology at Duke uh, and the Duke uh, Anesthesiology Chair. Dr. Matthew approached me about a possible collaboration when I was conducting functional and structural neuroimaging research as a faculty member of the Joseph and Kathleen Bryan uh, Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Duke. And I knew that he and uh, Dr. Mark Newman, who was the, who's now the former uh, Duke Chair of Anesthesiology uh, had published in the New England Journal of Medicine on postoperative cognitive uh, changes following cardiac surgery, and some data su to suggest that patients who had had an initial poor cognitive outcome after cardiac surgery may be an additional risk for subsequent cognitive decline, even out to five years. So, given those findings and what I kind of knew of Dr. Matthew and Dr. Newman's research, it occurred to me that the same geriatric patients that I was studying. Uh, for functional neuroimaging into phenotypes of late-life dementia risk could also be the same general cohort undergoing these cardiac surgeries. And then could it be that surgery in late in life uh, is contributing to what I was seeing in our longitudinal observation studies of functional and structural neuroimaging correlates of late-life cognitive decline? Uh, was surgery having an impact there? Uh, so it greatly interested me. And again, there was this theory uh, put forth that Postoperative delirium reflects a disconnection or a disorganization of brain function. And so we were interested to see if a similar process was involved in postoperative cognitive decline. So after we collected some preliminary data, uh, Dr. Matthew and I submitted a uh, R21 grant to National Institute of Heart, Lung, and Blood for additional funding, and we were fortunate enough to receive that. And then we were additionally fortunate to have Dr. Berger join Duke and the research team uh, for a few years into the grant. So the study results reflect cardiac surgery patients and non-cardiac control patients for whom we collected resting state functional connectivity data, as well as structural imaging data to account for possible effects of cerebrovascular disease lesions on functional imaging and cognition. The larger R21 grant and subsequent related research grants by our group have involved multiple structural and functional neuroimaging sequences. Uh, including both resting state and task-based data in these cardiac and non-cardiac surgeries. But for the paper itself, it only involved cardiac surgery patients uh, and uh, non-surgical cardiac patients with resting state data. And could you describe for us uh, what were the findings of the study? So the primary objective was to determine if there were any changes in the intrinsic functional connectivity of the brain. And by intrinsic functional connectivity, what I mean are we're starting to appreciate that there are these intrinsic networks in the brain that are 
spatially distant from each other but are functionally organized together in that they have coherent signals that coincide with each other. And so people may have heard of things like the default mode network or the salience network or the executive control network. That's what these intrinsic functional connectivity networks are. They're inherent intrinsic organization in the brain, and they've been most often used in studies discriminating between, say, normal and disease types, with the idea being that the disease process itself may be functionally altering these intrinsic networks, and we were interested to see if the same was occurring with uh, postoperative cognitive decline. So that was our primary objective, which is to assess to see if there was any differences in those intrinsic networks, either positively or negatively, in terms of its association with postoperative cognition. So to address that aim, we recruited cardiac surgery patients at Duke, uh, most of whom were undergoing uh, open surgery for mitral valve replacement or coronary artery bypass grafting as well as patients with a history of myocardial infarction, coronary artery disease, and similar cerebrovascular disease risk factors who were not slated to undergo surgery. And the patients in both surgery and control groups were excluded from participation on a host of medical and neurological and psychiatric factors, including things like stroke, uh, major stroke, alcoholism, renal failure, the presence of pre-surgical global cognitive impairment, to the level of what we would call mild cognitive impairment or worse, major psychiatric conditions, as well as other factors that may preclude them from uh, being scanned in an MRI machine with a three Tesla strength. So the patients all underwent sort of standard um, cardiac surgery with uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, a very standard anesthetic, usually with isoflurane, uh, the typical lines, you know, an arterial line, a central line typically with a PA catheter and uh, you know, transesophageal echocardiography. Uh, these were all on-pump, you know, bypass cases. You know, for the surgery, there was no actual intervention per se from the study. It was sort of, it's a, essentially an observational cohort study, if you will. Um, and then Jeff can, I think, go back to talking more about the cognitive testing and the functional neuroimaging that was done before and after the surgery. Yeah, so both of those groups, the surgery and the non-surgery, were scanned at baseline and then six weeks post-op. And we we scanned them at six weeks post-op to sort of reasonably account for recovery time in the surgical group patients. Um, the cognitive outcomes were assessed using multiple independent neuropsychological assessment measures to better sample sort of individual cognitive domains that may be involved in POCD. And then those cognitive data, outcome data, were then expressed as reliable change indices, um, which is a, a method for assessing uh, cognitive change that takes practice effects as well as normal test, retest, reliability into account. So the control patient's cognitive data act, acted as a control for practice effects as well as normal test, retest effects in the patient sample. Uh, and the benefit of, of developing or deriving those RCI values is that they're expressed as Z-scores, so it allows you to uh, aggregate your data across multiple measures into, say, a summary uh, statistic or a summary measure of global cognition. And, and that's the metric that we use to compare uh, against uh, the resting state functional connectivity data. In terms of the resting state functional connectivity data, we could probably do a whole podcast, if not multiple ones, on how to do those kinds of assessments. But briefly, we used a, uh, a voxel-wise uh, metric for uh, functional connectivity data called the intrinsic connectivity contrast. 
And it was a metric that was developed by Todd Constable's uh, imaging research group up at Yale. And interestingly, has been used by uh, Martuzzi and others in the anesthesia realm to assess for functional connectivity changes. And the benefit of using this intrinsic connectivity contrast, or what we call ICC metric, is that, uh, for one, it's voxel-wise, so you can assess for uh, functional connectivity changes across the brain without having an a priori assumption of where those differences may lie between your groups or in association with some variable, as well as uh, independent from independent arbitrary thresholds and how you determine what is significant or not significant or surviving uh, your comparisons. So um, it was a particularly attractive uh, metric to us, in part because we didn't really have much guiding research to suggest what may be going on in the brain of these individuals post-surgery in association with their cognitive change. So we ran an analysis uh, looking at the change in global cognition in surgery and control patients with the change in this ICC metric across the brain. Uh, we ran two analyses. One was an analysis at baseline between groups just to establish that there weren't any significant pre-surgical differences between our groups in terms of functional connectivity and its relationship to cognition. Um, and then we ran an analysis comparing the regression slopes between groups and the association between cognitive change and functional connectivity change. So uh, a couple things. So um, just for the, for the clinicians out there who may not be familiar with some of the fMRI terminology, so voxels or a voxel is basically a small cube of brain tissue. And in fMRI research, the brain is subdivided into these small cubic uh, structures or voxels, about three cubic millimeters, so three millimeters by three millimeters by three millimeters. And fMRI basically works based on detecting differences in blood flow, uh, actually in, in oxygenated blood flow to brain regions. And this is a phenomenon that will be uh, very understandable and, and common to neuroanesthesiologists in particular, uh, because it's basically based on neurovascular coupling, the same neurovascular coupling that we think about all the time in craniotomies for managing brain bulk and ICP and brain volume and trying to achieve good brain relaxation for our neurosurgical colleagues. Well, that same relationship is sort of the basis for the fMRI bold signal, the brain regions that are more active, where the neurons are firing more, the blood vessels will dilate, more blood flows in, more oxygenated blood flows in, and the fMRI machine basically picks up that change in oxygenated blood flow, which is then considered a proxy uh, for actually neuronal activity in that small region of the brain. Um, and the main thing that we found that, that Dr. Brownback was alluding to is there was a correlation between the change in cognition from before to after surgery and the change in connectivity within a particular region of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is sort of in the back of the brain near the midline. Um, and so the patients who had worse postoperative cognitive dysfunction or worse cognitive dysfunction after surgery six weeks afterwards tended to have less activation or less connectivity uh, in particular within the posterior cingulate cortex and, and uh, to several other brain regions. The interesting thing about that is the posterior cingulate is one of the most metabolically active regions of the brain and is considered to be a central hub in the brain's default mode network. Uh, for those who may not be as familiar with the default mode network, it's a set of brain regions that are basically uh, show coincident activity, so they're active at the same time, even though they don't have direct anatomic connections. Uh, and they show this coincident or same time activity 
specifically when people are awake but aren't really doing anything cognitively. So if you put people in the scanner and you just tell them, don't really think about anything, just keep your eyes open, but don't try to solve a math problem, don't think about anything in particular, you tend to see these brain regions being active. And what we found was that the less active those were at rest, that correlated with or was associated with uh, worsened cognition after surgery. So an interesting implication of this is, you know, people have argued in the cognitive neuroscience field for a while now about what the default mode network really does. Um, some people have sort of argued it's not really that important because it's not, the, it's not on during cognitive task performance. But I think our data points towards, and so does some other data points towards this idea that it may be actually performing some important homeostatic function for the brain, even when somebody isn't thinking about something. And that if your default mode network isn't working properly when you're at rest, then you can't kind of um, move into gear cognitively, similar to the way a stick shift car can't really move into gear if its neutral mode isn't working properly to begin with. For this study, what were the limitations that you uh, identified? Well, as Miles mentioned, um, the study is purely observational. And so by virtue of that, the imaging data type and the comparisons that we made between groups, we can only say that there is a possible relationship between postoperative changes in this intrinsic functional connectivity in the default mode network and postoperative cognitive change. Um, the relationship between the two, based upon our results, suggests that there's a positive relationship between the two, which would make intuitive sense given that decreased functional connectivities in these networks would not be predicted to enhance cognition. Um, so that made intuitive sense, but it's still the limitation is it's purely observational. It's correlational, not causational. You know, we reasonably try to control for other possible contributions to changes in functional connectivity by using uh, perioperative cerebrovascular damage or lesion load as a covariant in the analyses. But that was a global measure of white matter hyperintensity uh, volume or burden in the brain. Uh, and it may very well be that that global white matter lesion metric is not significant or uh, adequate enough to control for possible regional changes in, say, structural connectivity issues that are then causing these functional connectivity uh, issues that we observed in our data. And again, the study and is fairly small, very modest for an imaging study, um, largely in part because these studies are extremely difficult to conduct uh, with study uh, subject attrition as well as getting you know, surgical partners to use different devices and so forth for uh, 3T magnet strength. Um, but we are ongoing in terms of other studies and have increased our end sizes, which has been uh, encouraging. Yeah, I, I agree with Dr. Brandeike about those. I think the, the other issue is that, or the other limitation that's probably worth mentioning is that, you know, we try to match the non-surgical controls as well as we could to the surgical patients. And these were non-surgical patients who were taken from a cardiology clinic who have similar types of and, and magnitude of cardiac problems as the surgical patients. Nonetheless, because it's sort of a matched cohort study, if you will, uh, one can't rule out the possibility of residual confounding between groups. So that's a, a limitation as well. Can you describe some of the areas for a potential study going forward? Uh, you know, given that the study results are ultimately correlational, not causational, our group and others in the field should be positing methods and analyses that may allow us to better determine the relative contribution of possible causal factors in POCD. 
Um, and it, it appears that this functional connectivity change or metric may be a helpful neuroimaging endophenotype of POCD, in which case, you know, subsequent studies using functional connectivity analyses may be able to use these metrics as a way of assessing uh, outcomes for interventional trials in POCD and or postoperative delirium. Yeah, I, I agree. The The other thing I would add is that, um, you know, fMRI shows you changes in either activity or connectivity within large brain networks. What it doesn't tell you is why those changes are happening, um, sort of as, as Dr. Brownback was alluding to. Um, one of the ways we're trying to look at that now, or at least get some idea of what signaling pathways or molecular and cellular mechanisms might be involved, is by looking at CSF biomarkers in patients at the same time points as they're getting the neuroimaging scans. Uh, and the hope is that'll allow us to see, is there, for example, a change in Alzheimer's disease pathways that correlates with some of these neuroimaging changes, or is there a change in, for example, neuroinflammation or inflammatory markers or cells within the CSF? They correlate with these neuroimaging changes, et cetera. Um, and hopefully that'll point us or move us a small step forward towards a better understanding of what might be causing some of these imaging changes and or causing possibly some of the cognitive changes that we see after surgery. Yeah, and I would also add that assuming we do find a reliable biomarker of POCD, um, that may then lead to you know a possible target area for some neuromodulatory uh, studies looking at how we can actually adjust brain activity either before surgery or after to sort of mitigate some of these problems that we're seeing with POCD in our older patient samples. And that brings us to the uh, final question is, do you envision any possible either diagnostic or treatment options that could come out of this type of research? Well, I mean, pre-post imaging uh, will be difficult to do. So diagnostically using imaging as a way of pointing out uh, possible treatment options on a clinical scale is probably not feasible at this point. Now, granted, there may be other methods of assessing for regional changes in the brain like near-infrared spectroscopy and other methods that aren't as invasive and might be amenable to um, assessment in hospital, in which case, yes, there may be some targets that we can find or look at um, during the acute recovery phase, and then even then also looking at changes maybe uh, post-recovery, you know, during that 30-day 30 uh, 30 to 60-day window. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think while this, this study is obviously, you know, we think it's an important step forward, it's a small step in the much larger grand scheme of eventually being able to help patients either diagnosing or treating POCD. And I think it, you know, it's, in some ways, it's hard to believe this is only, I think, the first study ever to use fMRI to study connectivity changes in postoperative cognitive dysfunction, which is a little surprising, but not that surprising. I mean, fMRI has only been around for 15 or 20 years or so. So I think, you know, once we get a lot more information about what this disorder really is, we'll be in a better position to treat it and to understand it and diagnose it. But right now, I think our main focus has to really be on understanding what the disorder is. And I think it's um, useful for anesthesiologists to keep in mind the sort of perspective that we understand much less about the brain fundamentally as an organ than we do about most of the other organs in the body. I mean, we have very good understanding of how the heart pumps blood or how the kidneys filter the blood and produce urine, but exactly how the brain takes sensory information from our eyes or our ears or, or our taste buds and converts that into higher level thoughts and consciousness 
is still an area of very active uh, investigation. And that's sort of fundamentally different than where we are with the heart and the kidneys. It's not to say that there aren't important research questions in perioperative cardiac protection or renal protection or, or so on, but there's just something more fundamental that we don't yet understand about the brain. And the difficulty in understanding and studying a disorder like TOCD is that not only do we have to learn something about the disorder, but we have to understand something more about the brain at the same time and what brain circuits and what brain processes are important for cognition probably in order to fully understand and, and learn how to treat and diagnose uh, POCD. Well, Drs. Brandeik and Berger, I very much appreciate you taking the time to speak today uh, to the SNAC members. Uh, this is a topic I think that they'll find very interesting, and it'll be interesting to see where we go forward uh, with this in the future. My pleasure. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much for having us.